There is nothing worse than potential unrealized. We all have things that hold us back. What if we could find a way to get us unstuck? I'm Lachelle Weemey, and I am going to walk alongside you as you make the decision to get unstuck. Tune in as I help you realize that you are not alone, inspire hope, and offer practical solutions to help you step boldly into the life that you are meant to live. Hey everybody, welcome to the Unstuck Podcast. And today I have a very special guest, Beth Hookstra, who is going to share with us her amazing story of addiction, recovery, and just inspiring the heck out of people around her. And she's an extra special guest because Beth is actually my little sister. And I had the privilege of going through this with her. And I say that now looking back at it because it was a privilege and I learned so much about her and myself and what it takes to get through hard things. But at the time, it was it was really painful to watch. And Beth has just become an inspiration to me and so many people around us. And I cannot wait for you guys to hear her incredible story. Beth, I love you so much. And I cannot wait for people to just get to know you a little bit. So welcome. Thanks. I'm so glad to be here. Okay, girl. So I want you to start out by just telling us a little bit about what you're up to now and what you're most proud of these days. So currently, I am the Director of Operations at Project Morningstar, which is two sober living houses outside of Worthington, Minnesota. We serve individuals who are in long-term recovery from drugs or alcohol. We have one home that is for men and another home that is for women um, with or without children. Wow. And what other activities, because you're a busy, busy mom, so what other activities are you up to these days? Oh, gosh. Um, I attend Celebrate Recovery, our local church. That It was a life-changing experience for me um, starting that recovery program, and I continue to um, embrace it and enjoy it. And I also lead Celebrate Recovery inside our local jail, which has been such a humbling and amazing experience for myself as I was an inmate at that same jail. So it's very humbling for me to be able to walk into those doors and walk out when I want to. (laughs) So (laughs) yeah, yep. And I have two children, an 18-year-old son who is going to graduate in May, and then an 11-year-old daughter, Bailey, who is in fifth grade, and a husband, Adam, who runs a diesel repair shop on our property. So, and I also like to sponsor other women that are in recovery, pray with them, give them hope, talk to them, just kind of be, be that person that they can go to when they need someone themselves. Yeah. And I wanted to ask you this question first, what, and all of that, because all of that is amazing. What are you most proud of these days? (sighs) I guess I have a hard time giving myself compliments. I was actually listening to your last podcast. I relate to her so much when she said it's hard for her to get compliments and it's hard for her to accept those things. So that's always been a a challenge of mine is accepting how far I have come Mm -hmm. and, but also on the same thing, how far I, I still want to go. But I guess as of today, I can say that I am just super proud of myself for, I have a little over six years of sobriety from prescription medications and just being that the mom that God intended for me to be, that I can be there for my kids every day and show up with them and put them to bed and 
wake up with them in the morning to help them get ready for school and bring them to their appointments. The simple day-to-day stuff that I took for granted for so long and just being proud of the organization that I'm running and the position that I'm in at the organization that I get to essentially be the person that that people come into contact with when they first come. So yeah, that, that's amazing. And you're really humble. So I'm just going to say this, you also run your own virtual business in addition to all of this stuff. So I mean, you have a lot on your on your plate. And you're super, super inspirational on social media, because you inspire people to work out. So there's so many things like I could spend in a whole hour just like loving on you and bragging on you. But I really want to just start diving into when in your life you felt your weakest, you maybe felt like you were a victim of your circumstances, or you felt helpless or hopeless. And take us back through some of those experiences, Beth, so that we can help to see how far you have come. Yeah, I mean, something that sticks out to me, obviously, during my addiction, in the midst of my addiction is when I felt the absolute just feeling like there was no way out, no way out of it. I remember that it was a gradual process for me. I ended up having seven surgeries in two and a half years, and I just gradually continued to get more and more addicted to the prescription opiates. And then with that, you know, just led into other addictions with prescription medications. But I felt that it wasn't obvious to my family or friends. I felt that I was, no one really knew what was going on with me. And they they maybe didn't in the beginning, but as my addiction progressively got worse, they were noticing signs of that. And I remember my family having an intervention on me and you, Lachelle, were were part of that. And that was probably the pivotal point for me. But unfortunately, I can't tell you that that was was my, I I didn't stop after that either, but it was definitely left an impact on my life when my family came together and I walked downstairs and there's this um, stranger that I didn't know. And you guys read letters to me and, you know, gave me your bottom lines. I realize now looking back how hard that was for you guys to have to say like, Hey, like you have to, you can't continue to do this and we're not going to stand by you and watch you kill yourself. And if you continue to do that lifestyle, we have to set boundaries with you and we have to can't, we don't want you, we can't have you in our lives or we can't have you in um, our children's lives and things like that. So that was definitely a a pivotal point for me. And I did go um, into inpatient treatment after that. And after that first inpatient treatment, it didn't click that I truly had a problem. I was in such strong denial that I had a problem that it continued on for a few more months after that. And, you know, just eventually getting criminal charges for um, the prescription medications and going in and out of, like I mentioned, in and out of jails and treatment center. I eventually was um, admitted into our our local drug court program, which really was the, the change that I needed, that strong accountability and people in my life saying that I can do it. And I don't have to live live in that life anymore. Without this talking, I completely forgot the question. Where, I'm, where am I even going? <laughs> no, that's okay. So I want to. Like, okay, what was what was the question? I'm supposed yeah, to be really answering. No, but, no, no. You're yeah. good. You're good. And I think that one of the things that I want to go back to is where you were in your life when all of this went down. You had a bunch of surgeries in a short period of time. Tell us what you did for a living back then, and how that played into your addiction? Yeah. So I went to college. I got a bachelor's degree in social work. And right out of college, I became the local social service agency social worker where I did, I licensed foster homes and I did adoptions and I did some child protection. I worked with minor parents 
and also did some truancy cases. So I was kind of like the go-to for everything. Um, so I started out doing that. And then, you know, I continued in my social work careers and the, the job that I was at when all this stuff happened is I was working um, with a, an agency going into to people's homes and um, doing some child development stuff. So I basically got, basically got to go into people's homes and play with their kids, which was super fun. But where my life was at is that, you know, from the outside looking in, you would think, oh my gosh, this girl has it all together. This girl has everything my husband and I, we just had built a home during that time. Um, I had a son and I had a daughter. So it was just like everything should have been complete, but couldn't have been further from the truth. I was living in, in despair inside. So I've always had a passion to help people. And it definitely was not super easy to try to help people when your own life was falling apart inside. So I sometimes would put other people's problems, what other people were going through, and I put them on myself. So I just kind of felt that I was someone that people could go to. But like I said, in, in the end, my life was just miserable. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely miserable. Yeah. And one of the things that because I went alongside of you on this journey, I kept coming back to this point where you were this professional social worker, you were well known in the community and you almost felt like you were above addiction. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. I remember you mentioning that, that you went into treatment because we forced you to essentially, mm -hmm. but you still felt like you were smarter than the people that were trying to help you. You felt like you had it all together, that you were in control of this. And tell us a little bit about that mindset, because people might be able to relate to that or people in their lives, because I think that addiction in general has a stereotype that this whole new prescription drug epidemic that we have going on does not fall in line with our typical stereotypes. These are professional mm -hmm. people who are educated, do have essentially some way to be above it in a sense, but really you don't. No. Yeah, I know even though I was working in the social work type setting, so I a lot of the individuals that I came into contact were individuals that were struggling, whether it was poverty or parenting or addiction. And I remember there was never even a thought in my mind that I could be an addict because I had such a huge misconception of what addiction was and a stereotype of it myself. Even while living in addiction myself, I, like you said, I, I felt like there's no way I could be an addict. I'm not one of those people and I'm smarter and I'm educated and I grew up in a, a good family. There's no way that I could be an addict because of the misconception that I had of what addiction really was. So you mentioned already that you went through treatment a couple of times, and I want to hear more about that journey for you and how come it didn't just click the first time. Well, the first time that I went into treatment, I was, like, like I talked about before, I had an intervention and I was basically told either you go or we're going to cut you out of our lives. So I felt like I had to go. And I actually remember the day after I left treatment, I went and refilled a prescription that I should not have. And that, when I'm looking back on it, it, it just blows my mind. But that reality of addiction is just cunning, baffling, and powerful. And it, it has such a hold and a grip on you that you just don't even understand. So yes, after my first treatment, I the next day I went and filled a prescription that I wasn't supposed to have. And my husband um, noticed it right away immediately. And I went right back to treatment. So I want you to tell us about that ride that you had to take 
from your house back to the treatment center because that's something that I will never forget. Yeah, so like I said, when I went and refilled that prescription, my husband could tell something was wrong with me right away and he ended up searching my bag and found the prescription in there. So he told me that we're going back to treatment and I begged and I pleaded with him that I didn't need to go back to treatment, that it was just a slip. And then I needed these medications. I needed them. I could not survive a function without them. But through the family program, he, you know, learned that that's not reality. So he told me we were going and we got about, I don't know, maybe 10 minutes from home. And I jumped out of the car because he was going probably 50 miles an hour. And I chose to jump out of the car. So you literally jumped out of a moving car going 50 miles an hour. And just for our listeners, you had several surgeries in that, that two and a half years and two of them were back surgeries. So the fact that you were so desperate in this situation that you jumped out of a moving car on your way back to treatment tells people just how stinking powerful this hold was on you. Yeah, it was incredible. So I jumped out and then my husband ended up calling, I think it was his dad and my parents, and then they ended up bringing me the rest of the way because, you know, and I think a lot of it was the shame that I had. I've always felt as though I had to be a certain way and a certain image. And the fact that my addiction was becoming more publicized when I went to treatment the first time, I, law enforcement was contacting me at that time. And basically there was going to be criminal charges filed against me. And I just couldn't comprehend that I had never been in trouble before. And I was 27 years old. Like I said, I had to portray this image that was such that that I think that was the most thing that devastated me and that I didn't want to go back because what would people think of me that I am an addict and that I am going to treatment again and I have some criminal charges going. So that was definitely played a big part into it was the image that I wanted people to see of me and not think less of me because of what was going on. And what were your criminal charges filed against you for? Fifth degree drug possession. I had taken a prescription medication out of a friend's home and I went and refilled it at the pharmacy. And through all of this, you speaking of pharmacies, you were pretty creative, How many different pharmacies and doctors were you working with during this process of your addiction? Um, Probably two or three doctors and multiple pharmacies because if you went through your insurance or you went through them, then they would kick it out and say, hey, you just got this filled, so you couldn't get it filled. Then I would just pay out of pocket for, for the prescriptions. And because the life that I lived, I didn't live the life of a drug scene or drug dealers or that type of setting. So in order to get what I needed, I first would go to different doctors and like you said, pharmacies. And then when that ran out, I went into people's homes and took their prescription medications. And so you have told me just how just awful and remorseful you feel during that desperate time. What other things did you do to basically maintain your ability to keep up with your addiction? Just all of those things, going to different doctors and taking from people's homes and going to different pharmacies. And I justified it in my head at the time. I mean, you'd think someone looking back would be like, ding, 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 there's a problem with this. But It got so to the point where I would justify it and say, the doctors aren't giving me what I need, giving me, so I would justify it in that sense of, I'm doing this because I have to. 
one thing that stands out to me during all of this was a moment when someone had broken into your car. Tell us about that experience and what maybe happened that wasn't what it appeared. So I was in the drug court program at this time. And when I went to my first treatment, they prescribed me a medication that was supposed to replace the pain and the anxiety medications that I was on and that I could no longer take. And I remember a girl in treatment telling me, you know, if you take four or five of these, you will get a high. So in an addict's mind, ding, 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 you know, that sounds appealing to me. And again, this was a drug that was prescribed to me while I was at treatment. So while I was in the drug court program, I had gotten highly addicted to this gabapentin as well. And I went to an AA meeting um, about 40 miles away and I had run out of my gabapentin and I had no idea like how I was going to get more. You know, being in the drug court program, you were pretty closely monitored, basically monitored. Yeah, we were very closely monitored. So it wasn't quite as easy just to, you know, go here and go there and and whatever. So I decided I was going to fake a break in in my car while I was at this meeting. And so before I went into the meeting and I even wrote derogatory words on my passenger seat in permanent marker just to make it look more real that I indeed had been, my car had been burglarized. And so when I left the meeting, you know, I made the scene about, oh my gosh, somebody was in my car and, you know, we called the police and they made a report. And I remember contacting my drug court agents and letting them know what happened. And of course, them being, they're not, <laughs> we, I thought that they were completely going to buy this, whatever, but being where they've worked and they've heard and seen it all type of thing. So they were like, okay, you know, meet us at the emergency room. And that, that doctor did re-prescribe me the, that medication, but they were obviously very suspicious about that. And I remember going into drug court that next Wednesday, we had to, in drug court, you have to go every other week and appear in front of the judge. And I remember him telling me that he didn't believe a word I said. And it was definitely, it was hard for me to to hear all those things because again I had this image to protect but when it came to the medication addiction it's like nothing else mattered to me Mm -hmm. but getting those medications at the time so people are starting to looking back on it it just it blows my mind to the extent that I went went to but I understand it now because it is such a powerful addiction is so powerful alcoholism is so powerful that it just makes you do things and that you would never do otherwise yeah and that's so not you and you were starting to experience where people were catching on to you and now all of a sudden you were getting to a point where you weren't outsmarting people like you thought you were and you had gone through treatment how many times inpatient treatment I went through two times I would say two and a half because when I jumped out of the car and went back to treatment. I went back to treatment for 10 days. And then I ended up going into a sober living home from there after that one. But so inpatient treatment two and a half times, I would say. And for our listeners to understand, like what really scared me at that point, Beth, was when I found out that you were prescribed a beta blocker, which is basically a medication to lower blood pressure and that you had taken like I think it was like 42 pills in like three days to try to help with anxiety because I think it's sometimes common when people are about to give a speech they'll take a beta blocker to help with that and that was a point in my mind where I was so scared that something might actually really happen to you Mm -hmm. tell us about that experience and that is the 
baffling part about it too is when I was taking that particular medication in extreme form, there was no feeling. There wasn't a, a sense of euphoria or a high, as you want to say, in taking extra of this. It had just gotten to the point that even though it didn't necessarily do anything to me or make me feel better, was just in that mindset of, well, maybe this next time it will if I take four of them when I'm only supposed to take one or, or whatever. And that situation was actually the pivotal point in me starting recovery, I drug court wanted my mom to, I was living with my parents at the time and drug court wanted my mom to monitor my medications. And so my mom, it was a Sunday evening, I remember, and she noticed that there wasn't as many pills as there were supposed to be. And again, when you're living in addiction, it's absolutely exhausting. The amount of work you have to put into trying to cover up things is absolutely exhausting. So I tried to rip off the corner of the prescription to show a different date and she didn't buy it at all. And so she ended up calling my probation agent and telling her what happened. And I was arrested that evening. I was brought into jail and by the grace of God, that was finally my bottom that moment. You know, it wasn't easy. I still struggled with anxiety because when you do the things that I did during addiction, if you have a conscience, you're going to have anxiety because it's, it doesn't feel right mm -hmm. when you have to do those things and when you have to lie and you have to cover up and all those things doesn't feel right. And so it's just going to cause additional anxiety. But yeah, it was definitely the turning point that I needed. It was my bottom, as they say, in addiction and recovery. Most times we have to hit our bottom in order to go back up. And why this was my bottom and not jumping out of the car or, you know, all those different <laughs> times, I don't know. But it was just something that I don't really know. I can't explain it why that was my bottom, but it was. And it's been nothing, you know, like I said, it hasn't been easy this last little over six years, but it's been a gradual progression of getting my life back and getting my life back tenfold. Yeah. And that's what I want to go into next. So just to kind of recap, because I want people to understand that being stuck can come in so many different forms, right? And I can only imagine that during this time you felt stuck. Your family was essentially crumbling around you. You lost your job. You lost your reputation. You lost your livelihood. You were facing criminal charges. You were having to give up control in both treatment centers and through the drug court system. I had during during that in intervention had told you that if you didn't clean up, that you would never meet my unborn daughter. And that was killer for me because you were my little sister. And for me to have to threaten that, I had to make sure I was going to follow through on that. So, so many things around you, I can only imagine that you felt super helpless and hopeless during this time. Absolutely. Yep. And I want you to now focus your conversation on helping us understand how it was that you were able to get out of that. Because you guys, there's so much just inspiration in this because you were in a really bad place. I want you to teach all of us what you've done so that you can help all of us, no matter what we're feeling stuck with, to have the hope that we can get out of it. For me in the time um, to maintain my sobriety, it was that accountability that I had in drug courts, which I needed in the, the beginning stages to get through it. But I just, I took it all in. One of the biggest things that bothered me or hurt me per se about going through all of this and, and getting the criminal charges was I was never going to be able to be in the social work profession again. I always just, like I said, had a passion for, for helping people and that was gone. So but, but my first step was I couldn't worry about that. The first job that I got 
in recovery, I was working at Family Video, and I felt great about that. I was getting up, I was going to work, I was being a productive member of society, and that was what started the halibut. Yes, it wasn't what I envisioned long-term, but it was that small step that helped me continue to, to gain more momentum with that. So I, I did that. I, I started to be a productive member of society again. I wasn't laying in my bed and shaking all day where I had gotten to during my um, early stages of sobriety and in addiction. I would just lay in bed all day and literally shake because I was just a mess. <laughs> but so I started doing that and I got involved in our local church and I got involved in our local Celebrate Recovery. And those were pivotal moments for me in my recovery is just realizing that I am not in control of things and that my higher power, Jesus Christ, is in control and he loves me and he's forgiven me. No matter what I've done, he still loves me and forgives me. And I think that was brought me out of that darkness and into the light when I finally realized that, that I I was redeemed and I didn't have to stay in that mindset that I was nothing and that I was never going to be anyone. Because when I first got into recovery, I didn't want to even go into Walmart. I had such shame. So again, for me going out and getting a job and starting to do those things and get around the public and realize that I can do this and I don't have to stay in that mindset of just isolating myself at home and not being around other people. So it was just doing those types of things. And then like I told you before, I was living with my parents. So then I, and because I was in the drug court program in the state of Minnesota, I wasn't able to go back and live with my, my family in Ochidan, Iowa, which was hard. So I ended up getting an apartment that was closer to my family. It was about 10 minutes away. And again, just that another small step of transition because, you know, I've been independent. I moved out of my mom and dad's house right after college and I maintained life but for a while there, I didn't think I could function. I didn't think I could raise my daughter. I didn't think I could do all those day-to-day things that I've done for years. So it was just another next step for me, getting in on my own and realizing that I can do all those things that, that I once did. And then from there, it was crazy because while I was getting into recovery and really embracing it, we had a couple of sober living homes open up in our area. And I was approached by the person that was running it at the time to apply for the administrative assistant position. And I was just in awe. I was just thrilled that, oh my gosh, this is amazing because this again is me helping other people by showing them what I did and and getting to be that social work type of mentality and job. So I applied and I got the administrative assistant position and they, and then they came to me and asked if I would move into the house as women's house manager. And I had to do a lot of you know, praying about that because I wasn't sure if that was something that I could do or I could not do, but I did. And that was just a pivotal point in my life too, of getting out of my own mind and my own problems and helping other people, because that was crucial for me too, was getting out of my own head and helping other people and realizing that there's other people that are struggling too that that maybe need my help. So I did that for about six months. And then I was at the point of being able to graduate drug court. So I was able to move back in with my with my family, but I continued to be the administrative assistant. And then about six months after that, I was given the director of operations position and I which I have been in now for a little over five years. I have been in this position and I've been in recovery for a little over six years. So God has just brought everything full circle in my life um, that I'm able to 
give back in a position that I have so much passion for and because I've been there myself. And it's just empowering and humble for me to be able to do what I'm doing right now. So you kind of shared with us a few of your pivotal moments or steps in order to get you to where you are now. And I hear in your voice that being of service to others and helping others has been a huge part of you in your own healing because that has allowed you to have greater purpose in your life. Are there any other tools that other than your faith that you felt really helped you get through all of that? Um, I did some individual counseling for a couple years and that was helpful in just digging myself into, I don't want to say self-help, but self-improvement, different types of books. And that was really something that helped me as well is getting out of my own head, I think has been a struggle and working on different aspects of my life that I believe led to my addiction, Um, you know, self-esteem and people pleasing and and different things like that, that, you know, were definitely a part of my addiction because when you get to a point and then the substance might help, you know, shut that voice off or shut those Mm. things off in your mind, just jumping in and digging into it and eventually trying to find balance in life too. And then I also got involved with just working out on a daily basis, which I had never done before and trying to fuel my body with better things for me than, you know, McDonald's or whatever, pop or or all that stuff, just just a different way to live my life that will be valuable long-term. Yeah. So can you tell us some of your favorite self-help resources that you feel have been instrumental to your journey? Yeah. So last summer, my family and I, instead of doing Christmas presents, we decided to take a trip together. So we went to Florida last June and, you know, I was just kind of experiencing some, some depression and, you know, maybe some parts of my life that I wanted to improve and that I wanted to be better, but that just weren't. And so I needed to figure out because I'm not in control of a lot of things. However, I am in control of how I react to people and how, what I do, I am in control of that. And I think that was hard for me to comprehend that, that I wasn't, that ultimately I was in control of my own life and that I couldn't rely on other people for happiness, or I couldn't rely on other people for, you know, different things that I had the power within me through Jesus to live the life that I wanted to. And so I was just having a little bit of struggle. And I remember on that vacation, I was reading this book called The Subtle of Not Giving a Fuck. And the title just totally, you know, was like, wow, this, I got to read this. So I was reading this book and I'm like, you know, it just, it brought me to the realization that if you want something better, if you want something different, you have to put in the work and do those things. It's not just going to come. If you want to live a happier, healthier life, you can't just wake up and, you know, things aren't going to be done for you. You have to put in the work of doing those things. So that was, that was a big thing for me. And I remember I was a smoked cigarettes for 21 years. And after reading that book, I don't know if it was just gave me that motivation. So when we got back from that trip, I quit smoking and that was roughly eight months ago. So it's just realizing that I, that I have the power and that my circumstances aren't hopeless, that I have the power to make things better in my life. So that book was, was really momentum for me to just kind of realize that. I don't know. I've, I've read other books in the past, same nature, but that book just really stuck out to me that 
meant a lot to me. And then as of recently, I was struggling with some anxiety again. And I was talking to my sister, Lachelle, and she told me about this book that she has been listening to. So I started listening to that and it's been amazing. Battlefield of the Mind by Joyce Meyer has just really touched my heart in so many ways because I believe that our minds are so powerful and we can either feed them with positive things or we can feed them with negative things. And I was probably feeding my mind with too much negativity. And it's just acknowledging that and acknowledging those thoughts that I have in my head because for so long, there was automatic negative thoughts that would just pop in my head that I maybe didn't even realize were happening. You know, whether you're not good enough, nobody loves you, nobody cares, you're a crappy mom, you know, you're all these things. And it's about, for me, it's, I'm recognizing those thoughts as they come into my mind now and combating them with the truth of who I really am as a person. That's amazing. And I think that that's what's so powerful about all of our stories is that you've gone through some really crappy things and you felt really, really low, but you have been able to kind of scratch your way out of it and you have this amazing mindset and you're so successful, but yet you still struggle from time to time. You still have your bad days and there's still, you know, battles that have to be, you know, done on a regular basis. And thank you for giving us all of that that truth, because I think that sometimes we think that if we can get through the big things, then we're done. We have all of the tools that we need to be perfect for the rest of our lives, but we're not. Yeah, it is. It's amazing. It really is. It doesn't mean, you know, being in this recovery journey, like I said, is not, doesn't mean things are perfect or my life's perfect, but it's just learning how to deal with them differently now. But things come up all the time and, and I could be sober for 20 years, but I'm never going to get there. I'm always looking to grow and to learn and to be a better person. It's that's just part of my life is I'm always looking to be to be a better person and I can always grow. Awesome. So as we kind of finish up our conversation, is there anything else that you really want our listeners to hear right now from your experience? Just to realize that you have the power within you. And I believe that I have the power within me through Christ. That's how I believe to live the life that I, that I want to live because for so long, I thought it was my circumstances or it was whatever it may be. But in all reality, I have the power to live the life that I want. And that's really, it's scary, but it's really cool as well that we all have the power within us to be who we want to be in this life. And no one can tell us um, that we can't be. Awesome. Well, you are super, super inspirational on social media. How can our listeners find you if they want to follow your journey and be inspired by you? On my Facebook, I am Beth Lynn Hoekstra. Lynn was my maiden name. And um, I also run the page for our Sober Living Homes, um, which is Project Morningstar. So you can like and follow us on there or send me a friend request. Awesome. All right, Beth. Well, thank you so much for being so brave and vulnerable and inspiring and just so amazing today. And I thank you and I love you so much. Love you, girl. Bye. Now, don't forget to hit subscribe so that you don't miss any of this awesomeness. And I will see you here next week as we discover ways to get ourselves unstuck and walk together in order for all of us to step boldly into the life that we are meant to live. Now enjoy our imperfect outtakes. Bye.
that has been allowing you to be able to to greet sorry that has allowed you to have greater purpose that sense working on working on